y'all. Welcome to the Marty Smith Podcast with Outsider. This is the new revamped version. Uh, I'm thrilled by this. This is a new development here at Outsider. Uh, Travis Rockhold, my producer at ESPN for years, has now come on board at Outsider to not only produce my podcast here, but serve as a sort of co-host with me and kind of do what we did at ESPN, just to be 100% honest. And not only is Travis's role going to impact my podcast here and the quality thereof, he also will have a very important role in other podcasts at Outsider and at On3. And so we're thrilled to have him on board. I am more than anybody. And um, it's just a way that we can kind of revamp the Marty Smith podcast. Something that I've always wanted to do is a podcast kind of like what you see from my brother Pat McAfee or my brother Dan Levitard, where they go on and they discuss life and they discuss interesting moments in time and their passions and the like. And we've decided after much deliberation that that's what we want to do with this podcast. We know based on y'all's feedback that the interviews that we're doing here at Outsider with all of these amazing individuals, whether it's country music artists, uh, comedian John Crisk, I mean, I, the feedback that we've gotten from our conversation with John continues on. That thing has found its own life. I have had all age groups. I have had teenagers all the way up to folks in their 50s and 60s telling me how impactful that conversation was because of the vulnerability of that conversation. Because it was somebody who has lived in the public eye, who owned a mistake, had tremendous remorse for that mistake and used a mistake to become a better version of themselves. I say that all the time. I'm a very flawed man. But every time I screw up, I try to use that screw up to become a better me. And that's exactly what John has done. And gosh, has it empowered people. And those, those interviews that we've done on this medium have really impacted you guys. Because, I mean, these are some of our heroes, whether it's Tracy Lawrence sharing about his ego with us and breaking down in tears because of what he was in that time in his life. Or it's Chase Rice sharing about certain insecurities that he has. Or Rhett Akins deciding to sit down with us moments after he finds out he's going to be inducted in the Nashville Songwriter Hall of Fame. On and on and on. These conversations have been very impactful for you guys. And we're very grateful that you took the time to tell us that. Please continue. Please subscribe to this podcast. It is going to be a little different now. We're going to talk about things that are trending while also still interviewing the most important voices in country music and sports. So that's what the new Marty Smith podcast at Outsider Studios is. Can, can, I, make one, can I make one request, Marty? Yeah, what you got? Uh, can we not count episodes when we start each week? No, you're screwed. This is episode 19, I think. So I have to keep track? Yeah, you do. I don't. You do have to keep track. That's going to be part of your job. We I didn't know. bring you on board just to make us sound good. We brought you on board to count. 
how many podcasts we've done. When we were over, when 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 Travis was uh, producing my ESPN podcast for all those years, I wanted to tell people how many we had done. Once we got to a hundred, Travis said, "That's bull. You need to quit counting." I mean, I think it's. Uh, after a hundred, I mean, we're not the UFC, Marty. We UFC counts. Uh, if somebody farts, <laughs> that's a new fight, I think. All right, um, so I'll I'll, try, I'll do my best, and then when we get to a hundred, then I might reevaluate things. But for now, we'll, all I'll right. Count. Well, I, so I say we start today with my roots. I say we start with NASCAR racing today. All right, as we speak, the Cup Series has just raced at Martinsville Speedway in the penultimate race of the 2021 season. That race <laughs> was won by Alex Bowman in the number 48 Chevrolet for Hendrick Motorsports. To win that race, Alex got into Denny Hamlin late in the race, moved Denny up the racetrack. Denny was furious. Denny was as pissed off as I may have ever seen him. I don't know. I've known Denny a really long time. I've known Denny since before he had a job. So it's been a minute. He was pissed. And there's a lot of reasons why he was angry. First of all, he got wrecked when he was trying to win a race that would have been a massive victory for him. Uh, He always wants to win every short track race, so Martinsville is very special to him. And he wanted to make sure that he had an opportunity to race for a NASCAR championship this coming weekend in Phoenix, Arizona. So there was a lot going on there. And afterwards, he had some very choice words about Alex Bowman, uh, dropped an F-bomb on live national television, and basically said, Alex Bowman is a no driving SOB. He called him a hack. And, he called him a hack yeah. and then said uh, he's got like the best car, but he's, his teammates are better than him. He just unloaded on him. He did unload. And, you know, Alex, I, I appreciate the way Alex responded to it. Alex was like, I got the grandfather clock, Jack. I'm, I won the race. And, you know, Alex said to Marty Snyder after the race on NBC that, Look, I got into him, I got loose in or loose off, whatever he said, and I got into him and shoved him up the racetrack. It certainly wasn't intentional. Well, Denny ain't going to buy that. Like, Denny don't want to hear that. But where we netted out was Denny still made his way into the championship round. And when we get to Phoenix on Sunday, it's going to be Kyle Larson, Chase Elliott, Martin Truex Jr., and Denny Hamlin racing for the NASCAR championship. The driver that finishes the best wins the whole shebang. Denny's never won a NASCAR championship. Denny's a first ballot NASCAR Hall of Famer. Is he the greatest to not win a championship? Yes. That that distinction belonged to Martin Martin for a long time. Denny's won more races than Martin did. Denny's won the Daytona 500 multiple times, which Martin never did. So to me, Denny is the greatest driver ever that hasn't won a championship. And again, to me, if, I, if I'm voting tomorrow and Denny's on the ballot, he's on my ballot. So, uh, look, I understand why Denny's furious. Um, now it comes down to, you know, he goes to Twitter after the race and says to the, the fans that are trashing him, you could never understand the way that I feel. I came from nothing. And look, again, I've known Denny Hamlin probably since 2004, somewhere around in there. He didn't start in the Cup Series till 06. And so I've known him for a long time. And 
I think back to the guy that I met who came down from Chesterfield County, Virginia, whose father owned a trailer. I don't know if it was a, that they manufactured the trailers or they repaired the trailers, but that was the Hamlin family business. They didn't have a lot of funding. Denny's daddy didn't have all this money to shove into his career so that he could become a NASCAR star. And I think, this is my opinion, despite all of the money and all of the fame and all of the acclaim that Denny's accrued, look, his house on Lake Norman, If look, Lake Norman is right there, okay? It's right there outside my window. If you go out of my cove, around to the right and weave back around to the left about 15 minutes, there's where Denny's house sits. That thing is the biggest house on the lake. It's like, it's, it looks like a hotel. Got a basketball court in it. Denny's doing fine financially. But I think that Denny still has a chip on his shoulder about the young guys who came into the sport who their parents helped them pay, like pay their way in. Denny's, Denny's family leveraged everything they had to help him race, but they didn't have much. Denny's kind of self-made. Yeah. And a freaking wheel man, dude. I mean, a great, a great driver. And uh, so where we net out in all this is we leave Martinsville. We hold got on, guys hold on a second. off at each other, Let's stay which in is great for NASCAR. Let's stay in Martinsville for a second, though. What about the showdown after Alex wins with Denny pulling his car up beside him and spinning in front of I him? Have you, has, I love everything about it. I got no problem with it, man. Uh, it, it's the greatest thing that NASCAR could have asked for for this weekend. NASCAR can't pay for better PR. As long as, like, I can see how, look, I respect anybody who might have a problem with a potential safety issue. Because what if Alex has already unbuckled his belts? He's going to get out and celebrate. Like he said, what Alex said after the race was he was going to grab the checkered flag and do a reverse victory lap. Because Mark Martin, back to Mark, thought that was cool. And so he thought that would be a neat thing to do. So I get all that, whatever. In terms of PR, I fell in love with the NASCAR where these guys hated each other. I fell in love with the NASCAR where these guys got out of their race cars and were throwing haymakers. And it's just, you know, I think in the garage area, especially among the Hendrick Motorsports contingent right now, what you would probably hear is get out of the car and handle it. That's probably what the narrative is. If you want to try to be Billy Badass, get out of your car and do it. Look, for me, as a consumer of the sport, someone who has great passion for the sport, all it does is make me want to watch that championship race more just to see what happens. Well, exactly. I'd rather, I don't want them to fight right now. I want it to carry over. It's, we go back to Bryson DeChambeau and Brooks Kepka. It captivated the season, and people are paying attention to the Ryder Cup because those two guys – don't like each other. There's a legitimate dislike there. And if they came to blows, then it it's over with because now NASCAR has to get in the middle of it. Who knows what the ramifications are for the next week. So having this little showdown with the cars, it makes me want to tune in more on Sunday and watch the race. Yeah. And if you just look at the context of it, uh, you know, Denny cut Alex off and then he put his car in front of Alex's and lit up the tires, I think, is what happened. So it's not like he hauled off and, like, was going 35 mile an hour and ran into him. Nonetheless, it adds a ton of intrigue. And, look, the bottom line always in this life is conflict sales, period. People pay attention to conflict. 
And that's what we have as a NASCAR Cup Series heads to Phoenix, Arizona. We're going to have Chase Elliott on this podcast once the NASCAR season is over. I find the whole Chase Elliott-Denny Hamlin rivalry to be captivating. I love it. I mean, after the Martinsville race, Denny was asked, I wish I knew which one of our colleagues asked the question. I would shout them out. I don't know who asked it. But someone asked Denny about being booed in his home state. And his response was, that's just Chase Elliott fans. They don't think straight. And Chase was then asked about Denny's comment. Chase goes, I'm going to lose a whole lot of sleep over that, and so are my fans. I get like, it's just, that's what NASCAR needs. NASCAR needs these feuds. It's what built the sport. It's why I love it and have loved it since I was four years old. Rusty Wallace and Dale Earnhardt are bitching at each other, and Rusty bounces a water bottle off Big E's head. It's Big E dumping Terry Labonte to win Bristol. One of the craziest moments of my career, 1999, and the booze that rained down that night in Thunder Valley blew my – I never heard Dale Earnhardt get booed before. But it's what built the sport. What's the greatest skirmish fight, whatever you want to call it, that you were actually involved with as a media member watching it happen live? Oh, man. Um, Gosh, I got to think about that, Travis. Uh, I mean, I was at – the the craziest one that I was actually involved in was Texas Motor Speedway. What year was it? 2012 maybe? Jeff Gordon and Brad Keselowski got in a fight on pit road. And I ran into the melee with Bob Pockris, the governor of NASCAR media, works for Fox Sports, and Jamie Little, who is now a pit reporter for Fox Sports, one of the most uh, uh, most uh, respected there is in that, in that job. Jamie went into the fracas too. And I went to try to like protect Jamie. And there is a phenomenal There's video of this, right? Of Jamie saying, get the <laughs> F off of me. I'm going to get this story. We should have Jamie on sometime to talk about that moment because I thought I was trying to be Captain Chivalry over here. And she told me, get the hell off me, Jack. I'm going to get this interview right now. Jamie's a badass, dude. Like, Jamie is a a bad, bad dude. So that was the one that probably stands out the most. I mean, I was involved in every Tony Stewart fight. I was involved in every Kevin Harvick fight. I, because I was in the garage so long. And I was at every race, basically. So that was the story, uh, if there was a fight. So, but, but that Brad Keselowski-Jeff Gordon one stands out above the rest because of Jamie. But yeah, so now we get to go to the final and it's the four people racing are with Joe Gibbs racing or Hendrick. So now you have this like battle between the two, which is, I, I am interested to see how that kind of plays out, especially early on in the race. Normally you have a situation where racer code is get out of the way and let those guys figure it out. I'm not saying get out of the way and just let them go. If you have a better car, you race to win. You race for position. But if if you don't have a better car, let them figure it out. And normally that's the case. There's the gentleman's creed. With all this drama going around, 
I don't know what's going to happen. You think Kyle Busch is going to get out of the way for Chase Elliott or well, Kyle Larson? So that's what I was going to say. Is So you have Kyle Larson nope. and and uh, Chase Elliott with Hendrick, and then you have Martin Truex and Denny Hamill with Joe Gibbs Racing. They have teammates. So I'm curious to see what like William Byron or uh, Bowman does, especially if it's Denny Hamlin up there and how they, you know, how that will play. I am too. I mean, again, what could NASCAR could not pay for better drama going into the final race. I think all the way back to 2011, when Carl Edwards and Tony Stewart were racing for the championship, one of the greatest driving performances I've ever seen was Homestead Speedway in 2011, when Tony Stewart won that race to win the championship. It was mind blowing. But again, a lot of racers that day, because of the respect for Tony, they just pulled over and got out of his way and let him run Carl down. Um, but there was so much drama going into that weekend, NASCAR couldn't ask for better. And this is the kind of thing that Brian France, the former chairman of the sport, dreamed of when he said, we want to create a, ga a game seven type of atmosphere. And that's what they're getting this weekend in Phoenix. And I mean, I'm going to be in College Station, Texas, but I sure wish I was in Phoenix. I would love to see that thing. So before we move to our next topic, who wins or who do you think wins or who's got the advantage with this track? I think it's going to be Larson. I just feel like it's his year. He's had a an historic season in that number five car. And it's such a story. You know, uh, his whole career was in peril last year after he uttered a racial slur and was fired from Chip Ganassi Racing and all of his sponsors went away. And Rick Hendrick decides, I'm going to give this young man uh, another chance at a career. And Kyle has most certainly made the best of that opportunity. Uh, with Cliff Daniels, uh, Jimmy Johnson's former crew chief. Cliff's a great crew chief and has done a great job on that car this year. And I just feel like it's a year of destiny for him. We'll see. I mean, uh, you just never know what's going to happen. But I just love the intrigue. I, I can't wait to watch that race on Sunday. It's it's going to be exciting. It's uh, it now becomes must see appointment watch. It already was because of like you said the setup, but now you even want to watch at the beginning because it's what will happen. You know, early All on, of it. it's it's perfect. It's it's what you want. Now to college football. I think uh, we should have a Travis Rockhold PSA to Buckeye Nation. So for people that don't know me, I'm an Ohio State grad. I I guess I'm the I, – I love them. I live by them. I die by them. This past weekend, we beat Penn State. It was a big win, good win. And then I see fans running onto the field, and I just instantly screamed no. What? Why? What's your problem? You don't storm the field when you beat the 20th team in the country when you're Ohio State. You should win. You won by nine. What level of embarrassment did you have while you were it's, sitting there with your Tito's and tonic in your hand? Uh, it's soda. I don't do tonic. Tito's and soda. Let's, oh, I don't even know the difference. I don't even know what the hell the difference is. There's a big difference. If You can just immediately taste the difference. Learn, learn it, please. I drink brown water, son. Just put some respect on my drink when we're going, going forward, please. Uh, <laughs> I wasn't embarrassed because part of it, I wonder, is these students have just they haven't been able to go to big games. This is their first real night game. But in my four years at Ohio State, I stormed the field once. 
it was one verse two in 2005, 2006, when we beat the school up north. That's it, Marty. Texas A&M, Texas A&M stormed the field. They beat Alabama. Okay, that's allowed. Kentucky stormed the field. They beat Florida for the first time at home since 1986. That's allowed. Iowa stormed the field after they beat Penn State. We're not Iowa. With all due respect, that's below us. You stormed you the just f- dropped it with all due respect. You don't storm the that's field. That's fine. That's fine. I'll I'll pay, <laughs> what I'll pay the fine since we don't have fines in the Big Ten for storming the field. But it, you just don't do that. If you beat the the team up north, I'll think about it. If it's some what crazy- do you say to Clemson then? Because I think I'm pretty sure Clemson, Clemson they has, go on the field after every victory. Yeah, that's stupid. It's it's dumb. You, a storm in the field is something that you remember, and if you do it every time, like you beat Wake Forest, you storm the field, like that's just they like to go down there and have a party, man. Why are you a hater, dude? So go go. What is it? The the how's SO? it affect your life that the damn Clemson fans go on the field? How does that is, affect you? What is it? The SO club that they have go there and drink SO afterwards. Club, yeah. yeah. It's a, so Gas so so go up. there, but you don't storm the field for anything. You're not uh, what was it? Boston College stormed the field and they beat Missouri. What are we like? No. You, do you see Bama storm the field every time? Act like you've been there before. Yeah, we have been there. That's the thing. Oh, here's so what's a, your take on touchdown celebrations then? You, curmudgeon. Touchdown celebrations. Go for it. But like, here's Michigan State. Did they storm the field when they beat their rival on Saturday? They didn't. It's expected. They got a good football team up there in East Lansing. Uh, I don't know how good they are, though. I There's only one team that actually I fear. And who do you think that is? Alabama? Yeah. Georgia? I don't, I don't fear Georgia. I think that's because they haven't knocked us on in the teeth where Bama did that Here's less than a year ago. I said this on... Uh, on the Marty McGee program on SEC Network last weekend. The worst thing that could have happened for the rest of college football was for Bama to lose in College Station, Texas. Because Coach Saban has tried and tried to get his younger players to understand you can get beat. All of this stuff that you've worked for can just go away if you don't continue to work and remain focused and disciplined. A lot of those young players think they should be getting reps on defense or offense, and they are special team starters. But they're like, I don't want to be on special. I want to go play offense or defense. And then you go give up a house call to Texas A&M and lose on the road. That's a wake-up call. So now all those younger players for Alabama understand we can get our ass beat if we don't show up and do what we're supposed to do on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Sunday, we can lose on Saturday. And that is not good for the rest of college football. It's Because not- I'm telling you, that woke them Tide boys up. Okay, it woke them up, but I don't think it was – bad for the rest of college football because by them losing it it opened things up it created paths it doesn't change anything travis the only thing it changes is alabama's attitude okay because but, the tide still control their destiny all the way home 
But you know who Alabama was before that loss? They were Mike Tyson before he got knocked out. And now other teams at least see that there's a blueprint that you can knock Alabama out. But before that, they were on a streak and it was, they were looking unbeatable. And so now you can go in there and you can show, okay, Texas A&M with their backup quarterback beat them. There is a recipe to actually beat this team. They're not invincible. This is not Bama from 20. So now at least, hey, they might be motivated, but I can see that you, I can knock you out. We'll see what happens. You might be right. Maybe there is a blueprint. I completely disagree with you because I think in most cases, the only teams that beat Bama are Bama. Uh, right now, I can't wait to see what happens. As, I mean, look, I mean, as we go into this coming uh, weekend, Auburn's going down to College Station. That's a huge game. I mean, Auburn controls its destiny too, which is wild that all of a sudden, poor damn Eagle is in this position. Where did Auburn come from? I mean, Man, it wasn't. I don't know, dude. It wasn't too long ago that they were kind of, will they even get like seven wins this year? Bo Nix, it's unbelievable to me. It's just, um, I don't know. I think it was that, was it the crazy play? Was it against LSU that he had that like Johnny Manziel like play? Yeah, he did like 90 different moves and it was like watching Super Tecmo Bowl. But I, I, and threw a dime. And that's why, you know, obviously Bama is going to be favored against them but because you have Bo Nix that game is it's there for them it's crazy dude I mean it just it's in it's on the planes this year speak speaking it's, it just, me, it's wild can, can I I need to rant about one more thing in college football in the Big Ten and uh floor's yours general that's a friend of yours uh Mr. Jim Harbaugh do you remember he's a friend of mine they beat Rutgers by like seven and people are like, Oh, Jim Harbaugh and he's got his team playing good and they, they survive against Nebraska and people, Oh, this is the year for his team. And I kept trying to remind people that he hasn't played the two games that matter. He played one against Michigan state and he lost. He's going to lose again. He's not the guy. Well, we'll see. Uh, they are, they, they definitely played better this year than they have in recent years. Um, but they're not going to beat Ohio State. I mean, it's it, – look, what what Ohio State has figured out offensively is something to behold. Look, I mean, Penn State gave y'all all you wanted. I don't know. I can't wait to see if y'all are a playoff team. They, in my mind right now, you are. In my mind, we are. The rankings, depending on when you listen to us, might be already, already out. I don't think they're going to be in there yet because there's no point to put them up there yet. They've got stuff in front of them, so you let it play out. But this is the best season that I can recall in college football. If you don't have a dog in the it's f- awesome. if you're just watching it, it's the greatest season that I can recall. Maybe you could put 2007 up there, but that just had the crazy ending. This year has just been bananas. It's just so fun to watch. There's been all these amazing finishes, upsets. Uh, I love watching Matt Corral play football. To me, even though they got beat, he's still the Heisman favorite. I might be in the minority there because I know winning matters. But I just love watching that guy play football. And, you know, you look at – we shift gears to – I mean, if I think Jordan Davis has an argument to be in the Heisman conversation. What that Georgia defense is doing is historic. If there was ever a year, he at least deserves a seat in New York. I don't know if he's going to end up winning it because you know how the voting goes, but I think 
there isn't a more dominant player in college football than him. He's not, that's the truth. He's he's more dominant than Matt Corral, Kenneth Walker, K- Caleb. Like you name it, Jordan Davis. Bryce Young. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I I completely agree that I mean he just is unblockable. He's unblockable, and that whole defense is such a special group of young men. Uh, I've you know spent some time with them. I, I had a long interview for the Allstate Good Hands uh, program with N'Kobe Dean, and that young man has a 3.5-plus GPA in mechanical engineering, never made a B in high school. He is a freaking all – I mean, he had a pick six the other day. Or was it a fumble? I think it was a pick six, right, against Florida? I never had a B in high school either, but it's because they were all Cs. Did you ever make the honor roll? Uh – Probably like sixth grade or something, maybe. I had to be on the honor roll if I wanted to play sports. So I was on the honor roll every six weeks, but only because I had to be. But, I mean, go back to that defense, though. Florida was in it. It was 3 nothing with two minutes and change left to go. Yep. And that defense had, what, two or three turnovers? It's... I don't, especially in today's era of college football, where it's hard to play defense. I don't care who you're playing, the numbers that they're putting up against, it's un, it's unreal. This defense, I I will admit, I was skeptical early on. I was like, let's let's see them play somebody, and I'm I'm a believer in that defense. Yeah, I, my my buddy Roman Harper keeps saying at some point. They're going to have to outscore somebody. And who knows when that's going to be or who that's going to be, but all of these amazing offenses that they'll have to get past to win a national title, uh, can those offenses crack their uh, proverbial code? And when is JT Daniels the right answer? Is he the right answer? Uh, I mean, Stetson Bennett has played very well. that's the thing. I don't even know if you Kirby smart has been ripped up and down over the Jake from Justin Fields deal. But this decision here about what to do with Stetson Bennett and JT Daniels is one that no coach wants to have to deal with. It's one thing that deserves mention is Todd Monken and how awesome his play calling has been. His game plans have been great. Uh, the offensive coordinator for Georgia. And that's helped Stetson succeed uh, as much as anything. So I don't know, bro. I can't wait to see how it plays itself out. The first rankings as we tape this come out tonight. And I imagine uh, it's going to be Georgia, Ohio State, Bama. I don't think Ohio State will be in the top four. Oklahoma. You don't? No. Because I think the the committee knows that they still have Michigan State, the school up north. So they have some big wins that they can catapult them if they want to. But if you put them Who up you there. You put up there, Cincy? You put Cincinnati. You put Michigan State up there. You put, or, I think, Oregon. Because if you put Ohio State ahead of those guys now, if they win, you can't bring them down. But if they win, you can move them up and you can move things around. I think they're going to make their lives easier. It's similar to kind of how they handled them in 2014. Just let them keep – you know what's ahead of them, where Oregon and Cincinnati really don't have much ahead of them. So you put them up now, 
And then if you need to pull them out of that top four, you can. If you pull them out now, you can't put them up there later. So one thing, speaking of brackets and speaking of rankings, one thing that we're going to do here on the Marty Smith podcast here at Outsider in the coming weeks is we're going to have a country music draft. And what that means is Travis, Wes Blankenship, and myself are going to conduct a draft of how many artists? So I are think banned? I was uh, workshopping it in my head, and tell me if you like this idea. And the people Were can you actually workshopping it in my head. Yes. Yeah, so What's I. That mean? So I think we're gonna have five. You pick five artists that would be in your country music festival, but also in this draft is a venue, a beer, and a liquor. How, where you pick those at is up to you and your your draft board. Are you going to create like a master list from which we choose, or do we just? If it's it's a current artist, a, cur- a venue, and a, it's it's all current. But we can't duplicate. Yeah, so it's, it's a, a draft. draft. Yeah, yeah. So when you, I, you know, I kind of know where you're going to go, so I can, you know, let's just say you try to go with Eric first. If you don't get the first pick, I could take him off the board before you get to him. We'll have to figure out how to do the draft order too. Yeah, we gotta we gotta like do rock paper scissors or something for draft order, but I got a feeling Chief's gonna be the first off the board, no matter who's picking. I, I well, I don't know if it, it's anybody. You could go with George Strait to start. Do you know who has the number one tour in the world right now, Travis? I'm All guess, genres. I'm guess I don't know Eric. Eric, he does. How yeah. how, how many of your his shows have you seen so far? Just the one uh, in Columbus? Just one. I went to Columbus, Ohio. Um, I was giving very strong consideration to go into Atlanta, Georgia on Friday night if SEC Nation was at LSU Bama because that's in T-Town. And I thought, I can get over to Atlanta from T-Town. I'll just suck it up and be partly cloudy and ready to get rowdy on Saturday morning for Marty and McGee. But alas, we are going to College Station, Texas, and that makes my trek far more difficult. Uh, but um, you did see our boy Luke Combs over the weekend. Sure did. Uh, tremendous show. Amazing show. Uh, we were, uh, Marty and McGee and SEC Nation were at the world's largest outdoor libation celebration, soiree. Cocktail party. I think we're allowed to say it here in uh, Jacksonville for the Georgia-Florida game. It was the 100th meeting, if you ask the Bulldogs. If you ask the Gators, it was the 99th. <laughs> can't even uh, they, agree on a number. Can't even agree on that. But um, we had a blast down there, and Luke happened to be playing the arena right there on the grounds. And so producer Randy and Ryan McGee and myself went over and Luke was kind enough to have us in his suite. And we had the best time. He absolutely killed it. And Randy and I drank all the Miller Lite that Luke had to offer and uh, sang every song at the top of our lungs and just had an absolute ball. Really grateful that they had us out. And but there was someone someone else that you immediately texted me about that you got to hear. I believe it was uh, during their sound check, right? Oh, I forgot about this. So this is a good story. So 
I was waiting every evening, every Friday evening, McGee and I have this content that we do for the LA Sports Center or other shows. We'll take these segments on this game or that game or our favorite traditions at this stadium or our favorite memory at that game every week. And so he was off doing a piece of content with the Jacksonville Jumbo Shrimp. And now that's a minor league baseball team. And so I was just kind of hanging out in our workroom waiting on him. And I heard this sound coming from the arena. And our workroom was right there adjacent from the arena. Like in the, it was in the arena, but kind of around the corner from the actual floor. And so I was like, I'm going to sneak over here and see what, what's going on. Is Luke sound checking right now? I somehow make my way through. Nobody even stopped me. I just walked right through the doors there. There were several security guards and all of the um, concession staff were milling about. And guys were setting up barriers for the show that night. Some of Luke's crew were doing their work. This is like 4 o'clock in the afternoon, 4.30. And I walk in there into this one entrance tunnel. And Ashley McBride is sound checking. I stood there for an hour. I mean, I, I stood there. No, I wasn't leaving. That woman's pipes are insane. She sang uh, Bible in a 44. She sang uh, Can't You See. She sang Dahlonega. She sang like, and, and she was, it was so fun to watch. I've been in a million sound checks. But it was cool to watch her talk to her band and talk to the front of house guys about you know needing this a little louder or give me a little bit more there uh, to to a guitar player or a, her her key guy on keys or drums or whatever. Well, she might not have keys, I don't know, but her drummer was really fun for me, and I just leaned up against the wall and watched the whole damn thing because I felt like I was getting my own little show. And I texted uh, uh, Ashley's manager is John Peets from Q Prime, who also happens to be Eric Church's manager. So John is like my brother. I've known him since I've known Eric, 15, 20 years now. So I texted John a picture and said, I'm standing in Ashley's sound check. This is a spiritual experience. And he was so pumped that I was there. Like he was like, dude, that one can go and she can go. It's it's unreal the levels that she can go to. I mean, yeah, I texted Kip Moore too. Kip and, and Ashley are really close. He said that's a sister I never knew I had. And Kip, I said, dude, I'm in here. I'm telling you, this is a spiritual experience because her, she's one of those artists that it's so effortless for her. It just, or, or it seems like it feels as a as a fan effortless for her there's there's artists that wish that are successful and really talented that wish that they could hit her levels and she does it like it's a walk in the park it's amazing to listen to and and then she blew the doors off blew the roof off the place when it was her time to play her set on friday night um and and luke just I, i'm gonna guess he played for 95 or 100 minutes maybe something like that. Uh, amazing set list. 
speaking to guys that just make it seem so damn easy. It just seems so effortless for him. And, you know, told some stories. Uh, he played She Got the Best of Me. And before he played that song, he told this story about when he wrote it. And he said, I wrote this song. I didn't think anybody would ever hear it. You know, much less be playing it in front of a sold-out Jacksonville arena. Did you know that I'm in that video? Wait. You heard I mean? No, I, I did not know this. So this is an interesting story. Years ago, before he released She Got the Best of Me, or he'd released the radio, and he and his team, Cappy and Harp and Zach and all those guys were getting ready to put together a video. And I get this phone call. This was before I moved over here to our current home. We lived in our, our, our previous home at the time, and I had all my kids at the community pool. And it might have even been Vivi's birthday. I don't remember, but phone rings and it's Harp. Austin Harper is Luke's road, like his kind of right-hand guy, like Marshall Alexander's Eric's right-hand guy. Harp is, is Luke's right-hand guy. And Harp goes, hey, we're putting together a video for She Got the Best of Me. I need you to do – we need you to do a track for us. Can you go I didn't know and this. lay down a track for us? We'll send you what you're supposed to say. You're playing like a news reporter or a news anchor. And I said, yeah, I'll do whatever y'all need, man. It don't matter. So they send me the script over and I do the line and I forgot about it. I completely forgot that I even did it. And then the next thing you know, the video comes out. I completely forget all about the fact that I've even done this. And I hear this girl who opens the video. And then I hear me. I think if I I'm remember, like, what? Is, what? Oh my gosh, I forgot about this. I think I probably heard it once. I, I want to say I text you like, is that you? We'll definitely keep you posted on this developing situation. In other news, Luke Combs celebrates his debut album going platinum. I even remember the lines. That's, that's a uh, I may not. I may not remember the lines. It's just that Lainey and I have listened to that song so many times, I've now memorized my own little effort and then it's our boy big sexy here in charlotte who does the other part who does the whole like radio dj part he's a dj here in town if things don't work out you can you can you know make that your full-time job in other news luke combs celebrates his debut album going platinum and then there was something about like him playing a concert and the lines out the door the tickets are sold out i don't know so Speaking of tickets being sold and blossoming, blossoming country music careers, I had the opportunity a couple weeks back before I had good internet to interview Breland. Uh, let me tell you guys about a shooting star and a light in the world and an unbelievable spirit and personality. His career is taking off. He has been a very successful writer for a long time. His Instagram bio says the pin point guard. And I asked him about that and what that meant. And I asked him about this budding career. And budding may even be unfair. It's a full-blown career. Just went on tour with Dirks and did a bunch of shows with DB and had a blast. And he's doing all these collaborations now. And we were just really intrigued by what he's doing. So without further ado... We would like to introduce those of you who may be unfamiliar to Breland. 
and really dive in much deeper to those of you who've already become fans of Breland. Here he is on the Marty Smith podcast here at Outsider. All right, Breland. First, man, I just want to talk about you. Your bio on your social media handles, the pinpoint guard. Yes, what sir. What does that say about you? Man, what does that say about you? You know, obviously, I know you're uh, you're a sports fan and writer yourself. So, uh, pinpoint guard is just kind of my moniker for what I do in the studio. I'm kind of a point guard uh, as a songwriter. I dished out songs for a lot of years. I've always kind of looking to to get artists' records, but when the lane was open, I decided it was time to to drive in and get some points myself. You have written for so many different artists and and so successfully. How would you describe your writing process? Yeah, man, thank you. My writing process is kind of usually start with like chords, um, just like a a musical bed. I'm a really melodic person, so uh, I like to have have some melodies, and I come up with a concept first. I'm sure when when you write things, you usually have an angle in mind when you're you're writing something. This is what I want to write about. That helps. Some writers don't do that. Some writers just start writing and then see where it takes them. I'm I'm pretty structured, Uh, and then just kind of piece it together like that. But if I'm writing something for me, I want it to sound like something that that I would want to say. But when I'm writing for other artists, I have to kind of put myself in their shoes and see what I think they would want to say and what would resonate with their audience. And so that's kind of my approach. What's the responsibility in that? It's always funny. I can I can relate somewhat because there's been times in my career when I wrote something that was actually someone else's words and it became a first person type of story. Right. right? And when you're charged with someone else's value system and someone Mm -hmm. else's soul, that's a big responsibility. That is a big responsibility. And I think for me is if it's something that they would say and something that they would be saying anyway, then I feel comfortable writing it from their perspective. Right. So I'll look at an artist's body of work and say, okay, this seems to be the type of messaging that that they're putting out uh, from whatever perspective that is, and I try to put myself in that in that place. Now, if I would personally say something differently, I would do that on my song. But from 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 their song, it's kind of like if you're writing uh, a script for someone, you got to think about it as as an actor. This person is a is a character, and you can imagine what that character might say and what that character might not say the difference is in this situation it's it's real people but it's the same principle of it's 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 fiction because you're imagining what it w- would be that they would say it's interesting too uh you know you, you say in a moment ago how a lot of times we go in with an angle you right. go into a writing session with an idea but it's sure. always beautiful to me if I go to a college football program to do a story or I go to a golfer to do a story or or whatever the context may be, I have an idea in my head, but then as the interview materializes or the story unfolds, you realize it's a completely different story. Yeah. How often does that happen to you when you go into a writing session with an idea, but you come out with something completely different that's every bit or more beautiful? Almost, it happens almost every time. Every time. I mean, because the, the truth of the matter is, as as well as I may try to plan for something, uh, you know, the song wants what the song wants, and I'm kind of in in service to the song. Uh, and so I could easily be like, no, it has to be this. But all of the songs that I'm really proud of, it feels like the song kind of led me 
to its completion rather than me trying to just impose my will on it. So I just try to stay receptive to what feels right when I'm creating. And if it takes me a different direction than the one that I came in thinking it was going to be, that's fine by me. I love that line in service to the song. Definitely. That is so well said <laughs> because man, the entire industry that you're in, all of it, there's a whole lot of bells, a whole lot of whistles, a whole lot of nice jeans, a whole lot of pretty this, a whole lot of handsome that, but it's all about the songs at its foundation. Definitely, man. And I love what you said, in service to the song. Did, yeah. did you just come over that right now? Because I like that. <laughs> no, I've been, I've been saying that for a little while. Hey, tell me this, man. You got a, you got a Marquette, uh, Marquette sweatshirt on? Is that what I see? One of my groomsmen in my wedding 147 years ago, before you were even born, <laughs> uh, he is the golf coach at Marquette. Gotcha. So, yeah, I was going to say, we got some, some Golden Eagles over here. Okay. Yeah, I'm a, uh, I'm, I'm a Georgetown alum, so when it comes to like college hoops, we go up against Marquette a couple times a year. I was going to ask you about Georgetown in just a little while. Uh, <laughs> I've been around AI a little bit. Oh, and, wow. Hey, let me tell you, man, that guy has an energy. Uh, when it, if you want to get into hoops, we'll get into hoops. I mean, that guy, <laughs> for me, I'm a Jordan guy. Michael's yeah. the greatest of all time. I respect LeBron. Kobe was uh, a one of one, but Michael is the GOAT. Now, pound for pound, Nobody ever played the game harder than Allen Iverson. I believe that guy that. was six foot one, 160 pounds of sheer badass. For sure. And <laughs> I love watching that guy play. So for a guy that went to Georgetown, yeah. who is Allen Iverson to Georgetown alumni? Yeah, I mean, not only as a, as a Georgetown alum, but also I grew up in South Jersey. I'm a big Philly sports fan my whole life. So I grew up watching Allen Iverson, and my dad had gone to Georgetown. So I, I respected him doubly, both as a, as a Georgetown fan and as a Sixers fan. Uh, I mean, as a kind of undersized guy myself, you know, I'm 5'8", I'm but I was always like the shortest person in my class and I played basketball growing up. I feel like he was just kind of an inspiration to me because there really wasn't like, there wasn't anyone like him in the NBA at that time. And as you said, pound for pound, I would agree with that. I think he's pound for pound, probably the best basketball player of all time. And just the the types of moves that he was doing on the court People do some of that stuff all the time now, but he was creating some of these crossovers and ankle breakers that like people literally did not know how to defend. And I just think as a fan of the game and then also as someone that's kind of paving my own lane, there are a lot of similarities between a player like Allen Iverson and myself. That said, uh, I do practice. So I, I, have no, <laughs> I have no problem talking about practice. <laughs> how are you introduced to music? How did you enter this world? Yeah, man, my, both of my parents sing. Uh, they met in a gospel choir in college and uh, kind of went on to, to lead worship at church, and they're both ordained ministers. So there's always a lot of gospel music and really strong vocals around when I was growing up. That said, I was not the most talented kid. Like, there's some kids that you see and you're like, oh, my gosh, this kid is a superstar. I wasn't that kid. I don't think I really stepped into that until a lot later in life. But 
was definitely exposed to a lot of great music and uh, kind of eventually started to find my voice. And by the time I went away to high school, I went to a, to a boarding high school. So I was living on a campus. I kind of had a chance to, to reinvent myself a little bit. Like growing up, my mom was the vice principal of my elementary school. So I was always kind of like her son, you know, to everybody. And I finally had a, a, a place where nobody knew who I was and I could do anything or be anyone I wanted. And I just started telling people that I was an artist before I even, I didn't have any songs or anything. I was just like, oh yeah, I'm an artist. And they're like, okay, well, where's your music? And I was like, oh, you know, I'm working on it. Uh, and eventually I, I started to write some songs and, and play them so I could kind of catch up with this new identity that I had created for myself. Uh, and, and it worked. People, people bought it. And I really started to enjoy being on stage and creating songs uh, and then kind of took off from there. What was your first time on stage? Put me there. Uh, so uh, there's kind of two, two instances. One was my first time on stage in, in high school, which was, it was this like open mic night. I was a freshman, a bunch of people from the school were there, a lot of faculty, some parents, and I was singing a, a song that I had written and it, the song was trash. It was just hot garbage, honestly. <laughs> like, let's be honest, 14-year-olds don't need to be writing, writing songs. Well, 14-year-olds should write songs, but you should understand when you're a 14-year-old writing songs that you are a 14-year-old writing songs. That's not probably not going to be your magnum opus at that age, right? But uh, I came out, and it had some singing and some rapping, and I was nervous as all heck. And... Um, my, my peers were really supportive and they cheered even though I messed up a few times and was shaking with my hand on the mic and they, they just, they supported it. And I felt, I just felt loved and was like, okay, cool. That wasn't so bad. I can definitely go do that again. But then fast forward about 12 years uh, to a couple months ago, I kind of stopped performing for a number of years and then was focusing on just writing songs for people. And then as, as, I started to put music out as an adult uh, and things started to pop off the pandemic hit. So I never got a chance to perform my truck or any of these songs in front of a real audience at, you know, for the whole first year and a half that I had music out over the past couple of years until this spring, really, until stuff started to open back up. And that performance kind of also feels like my first performance because that was my first performance as Breland. And I was performing at the CMT Awards with Gladys Knight and it was live television and I literally had not played a show yet. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, okay wait so, a minute now. Wait a minute. Wait yeah. a minute. Wait a minute. You you got to go you got to go down that rabbit hole, bro. Yeah, I, man. I I mean, that's one of the greatest of all time. Yeah. What are your emotions? What is your reaction? How are your how are you managing this moment? Yeah, it's so I was I was going to be coming out at the at the CMT Awards to sing my song Cross Country uh, with Mickey Guyton, who's another country music artist. And they were like, hey, um, it's going to go into a Gladys Knight song. Do you want to be a part of that as well? And I was like, sure. And they're like, OK, cool. Yeah, Gladys would love it. And I was like, oh, she's going to be there. They're like, yeah. And so we did a sound check the, the day before. I was so nervous. She was like, you sound great. Don't be nervous. And And she's just like so iconic and she looks great for, I mean, she looks great period, but she looks great for her age. I had, I wouldn't have known that she had been in this industry for 50 plus years. Right. And the night of the actual show, 
that's when I started to get really nervous because I was realizing that I'm like, yo, this is live TV. There's a million people, a couple million people watching this. My whole family and everybody are watching this from home. And there are people in Bridgestone Arena right now watching the performance. And I've never had a performance. <laughs> and I'm on stage with Gladys Knight. It was just a lot of factors, uh, <laughs> a lot of things going on at once. That said, I just kind of channeled it in. And I, I kind of thought, you know, I didn't, I don't think that I got to where I am by chance. I think that there's some divine involvement. And so I kind of just realized, like, I don't think that God would have brought me this far to fail here. And I need to just trust what's happening. And so I just kind of channeled it into that. And it was a really great night. How does growing in a home with two ordained ministers impact your worldview? It impacts it tremendously, man. I think for one, I, I you know, as I said, I don't really take anything for granted. And I also can't really take credit for any of the things that are happening. I mean, I can take credit for putting in the work, but God puts me in the position for that work to, to mean something. And, uh, and, and it just kind of also helps keep me centered when it comes to what it is that I want to bring to the world. I want to bring light and positivity to the world, even if I'm not making Christian music or gospel music per se, I think there's there's an energy that I can bring to a stage or to an interaction with a fan or to an interview or just in the music itself where I'm like, I'm bringing joy to the world and bringing love and positivity to the world. And I think a lot of that is informed by my faith. It's so important right now, man, uh, with, with kind of where we are, just to be kind. One thing that I love so much about music is in this world where we need kindness. We need to be kind to one another. We need to consider other people's emotions and perspectives. And if we inject joy into their day, we could change not only their day or life, but the world. I agree, man. And one of the best ways to do that is what you do every day. Yeah. You and your peers. How aware are you that music can be that vehicle? I'm constantly aware of it, man. It is the main driving force behind what I do. And, and part of why I like calling myself the pinpoint guard and, and being here on this podcast with you, man, is, is that I think there are a lot of parallels between music and sports. Uh, and I can recall a time that I was, I'm, I'm a big Eagles fan and I was headed to an Eagles game. And this, as we were headed to the game, this dude was in a car and was just just being an idiot and, and was like cutting us off and just had a, had an energy about him where I was like, yo, screw that guy. And then we both pulled into the Eagles parking lot and came out in Eagles jerseys. And I was like, Oh snap. I'm like my brother, you know, we dap each other up and it's, and it's crazy how, you know, <laughs> allegiance to a team can settle differences immediately where if we had pulled into a Walmart parking lot, I would have been like, I can't stand this guy. He's being an idiot. But in that context, it was like, okay, well, you know what? It doesn't matter anymore because we're wearing the same Jersey. And I think sports do a really good job of that. And I think music can do that as well, where my audiences are diverse. I'm fusing country music with hip hop, R&B, gospel and pop. And nobody has really done that in that way. I call it cross country is kind of the, the title that I have for, for the subgenre of music that I make. And cross country... As a result, there are people who come to my shows who are traditional country fans. There are people who come to my shows who really only listen to hip hop and everything in between. And so it's always a really diverse crowd. And 
when I see people forming relationships with each other in my audience, it'll be an old white dude and a young black kid and they're singing along to every word. That's a really powerful moment when you see people that probably did not come from the same background, probably are not coming from the same place, uh, being able to, to put those differences aside and, and have common ground. I think sports and music both are really integral for that ideology moving forward. Music, sports, Church, literally, and that's it. that was one reason the pandemic was so hard on all of us because we didn't we have couldn't it. gather. Yep, it's funny you were mentioning being an Eagles fan. I I married into an Eagles family, and uh, every one of them are complete and total lunatics about <laughs> the Sixers, the Eagles, the Phillies. The like y'all are crazy, man. We're crazy. Every one of y'all. I thought Dude. SEC football was crazy. Y'all are crazy. Yeah, man. I don't know what it is. <laughs> I don't know what it is about Eagles fans, bro, or just Philly sports fans in general. And I'm a pretty, pretty collected, calm guy. I've got my stuff together, except when I'm watching Philly sports. When I can't even watch Eagles games in public anymore because people might recognize me and be like, yo, Breland is crazy. <laughs> and I don't want to go viral for the wrong reason. So I have to watch all my games from home privately, especially this year. It's been tough. It's a rebuild. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm watching all that stuff from home now. All right, so as I told Breland there, I I married into a family of Eagles lunatics. So I understand how crazy these people are. They're nuts. We have a tech we have a tech stream with the whole family every Sunday. And it's like they're they're the Eagles fans are the SEC fans of the NFL. They they are I don't care if it's sunshine and rainbows, it's the sky is falling at all times for that fan base. And they're so passionate. It's, I mean, it's crazy to watch the way that they react to things. I'm with Breland. I'm not anywhere near famous like he is. And I don't watch Ohio State out in public usually. So I get why he wouldn't go watch his Eagles out in public. So my brother-in-law, Donnie, he got to a point where he had to stop watching them at all for a while because – he was not feeling good. Like he would be physically ill after watching an Eagles game. So he had to like reassess and reprioritize where they fit in the hierarchy of his priority scale in life. He was that invested and that pissed off. And like, I'll never forget. I was on a Disney cruise boat with my brother-in-law, Mike Laney's younger brother, and his family, our family was with their family, after the college football playoff in whatever year, when did the Eagles win the Super Bowl? Like three years ago? Yeah, I think so. See, the Eagles are the SEC. They fire their coach two years after he wins the freaking Super Bowl for the first time since 1960 or whatever it was. Anyway, I am – like, my brother-in-law cried. Wept on that Disney cruise boat when the Eagles won the Super Bowl. I get it. I love it. I love everything about it. That's what makes sports great. Sports and music are great because of community. Because you can commiserate if you hate something that the team is doing. You can hug complete strangers, and it's okay when your team wins a game they're not supposed to win or you don't expect them to win. That's the beauty of sport. It's the best. And again, y'all know, anybody that knows anything about me knows what I'm about. I'm about kindness, effort, and passion. And listening to Breland, you can see that he's about the very same things. 
I was really filled up emotionally and, and spiritually by talking to him. And guys, that's only half of the conversation that I had with Breland. And you can hear the second half next week. Please make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the Marty Smith podcast here at Outsider. Again, as you can see, Travis and I are taking a completely different approach to this thing. We're going to put together a whole merry band of idiots. At times, if we're talking about great brown water, great bourbon, great whiskey, I might dra drag uh, Jim Casey, uh, one of our executive editors, who fancies himself as a bourbon expert. Well, we, I try to we have a producer that's in the control right now that claims that he can do a blind taste test of 10 bourbons and he can get them all right. So when he does okay, that, then get ready for that on the he'll, he'll be podcast. coming on the podcast after when he when he attempts that. Brandon so, thinks he can do that. Yeah, Brandon does. Yeah, I call bull. <laughs> yeah, I can't wait to see this happen. First of all, I can't wait to see Brandon completely inebriated. That's going to be fun. But on top of that, I can't wait for him to take a swig of, I don't know, Knob Creek and go, I know what that is. That's Jim Bean. So after he does that, he will definitely be coming on. But yeah, this is what the podcast is going to be. I'll still be going after those guests and we'll still have them on from time to time. But other times it's going to be a little bit of sports, a little bit of country music talk, a little family talk. Uh, I'm living in a, a whole new city with uh, endless amounts of bars and copious amounts you of alcohol. So, uh, I went to a few when I first got down here past week or so I've... Uh, I stayed low key. I did go for a run on Sunday through, uh, you know, downtown and at 10 a.m. And, you know, people are dressed to the nines, drinking on brunch and the urge to day drink around here. It's it's hard to fight. But so who be knows? This, this podcast can be a little bit of everything. It's going to be so fun and so fulfilling for us. And hopefully you guys enjoy this. I'll tell you guys straight up, like why we felt like this was the right call. Again, as I said off the top, we know you love the interview portion. I do too. That is the most fulfilling part of my job, whether it's the ESPN side, whether I get to tell a story like I just told with Zamir White, Georgia's running back. I went to Athens, Georgia and spent a day with Zamir and Kobe Dean and Kirby Smart and Coach McGee, Del McGee, the running backs coach for Georgia. And then a couple of days after that, I went down to Laurenburg, North Carolina, and spent the entire day with Zamir's family down in Laurenburg. And I, I learned about his entire path and all of the complications that came from his birth. His mother had him when she was 14. The doctors told her to abort him. And her grandmother said, we ain't doing that, girl. You're going to have this baby. And then he was born with a cleft lip and a cleft palate and had to face a lot of mocking and a lot of being picked on as a young person. And he went into the gym and onto the gridiron to show everybody, I'm going to outwork you and I'm going to get bigger than you and I'm going to be a lot more badass than you and you ain't going to pick on me no more. And gosh, that's fulfilling for me, guys. So these interviews that we're doing on here, with folks like Breland and all of the artists that we've had on, I have learned so much. And if you guys haven't heard our interview with Luke Combs, you should go listen to that. Travis will make sure to tweet what number that is. If you haven't heard our conversations with Travis Tritt and Kip Moore, 
and you love country music, you got to go listen to these. It's the joy of my life to get to spend time with these people that I admire so deeply because I love their work. When Lainey and I, our most special times together as a married couple, in May will be 22 years. And all we talk about is, I can't wait to get to the next show. I can't wait to see the next show. I'm hoping that SEC Nation, selfishly, is in Knoxville, Tennessee here in a couple weeks because Eric is playing Thompson Bowling Arena on Friday night. You think Laney ain't going to come over to that with me? Come on. So if you guys love country music and you love everything that is small-town America and you love blue-collar America, you love God, country, family, hometowns, high school football, that's what we're about over here at Outsider. And we got so much coming that y'all won't believe. It'll blow your minds. We have so much coming at this company that I'm so excited about and I can't wait to talk about at length. Thank y'all for listening. We're so grateful that you took the time. Thank you so much to Breland for offering his time to us. And again, make sure to tune in next week for the second half of my conversation with him. It fills my tank up to the brim that Travis is part of this team. I'm so glad that he's moved to Nashville and he's part of the Marty Smith podcast. He's part of the outsider family. We got big things coming. Thank you so much to our law enforcement officials all over this country working so hard to keep our communities safe. Thank you so much to our first responders all over this country and all these little towns running into the fire to save lives. And thank you so much to the United States military. Thank you for your sacrifice. It's because of you guys that we get to be free and we get to live in the greatest land there is in this world. I'm so grateful for freedom. Your sacrifice allows us to achieve and go be whatever the hell we want to be every day. Thank you. This is the Marty Smith Podcast at Outsider. Thank you so much for hanging out. We'll do better next time around. Tune in next week for round two of Breland.